Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. And so we're looking at what it is that led or crafted Moses into the leader that he became. And so last week we looked at the opening chapter, chapter two or so, the opening chapters of the early life of uh, of, uh, Moses. And we noticed that one of the things that God used in order to begin the crafting work in Moses to make him the great leader is that is that of failure. And so his greatness came, first of all, by facing his failure and the opening uh, work that he did or the event that he did was to kill that Egyptian, that Egyptian slave. He would learn from that that when we do things in our own strength, we find that we more often than not are doing the wrong things. We need to do things in the power of God's Spirit and as He would lead. Failure reminds us that without Messiah, we can do nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. We think that we can do something, but the Scripture is telling us we actually can do nothing. I want to talk about that again in a, in a, short, in a short moment. We also learned that when left to ourselves, we not only will not do what God wants us to do, but we'll do some terrible things, even as Moses took the life of this individual. And we also learned that when we face our failures, despite our failures, because of God's grace and mercy, he can use us nevertheless as he goes on to use Moses. I'd like us to turn to chapter 3 because not only does God use failure, not only must we face failures in order to become the kinds of people God would have us to be, but we also need to face God. We need to encounter the Lord. And that's what happens here in Exodus chapter 3. So let me read some of these verses to you, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed." And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, 
Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You will serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What a powerful encounter, no? And it's interesting because Moses is the first person to ask, who is God? Who are you? What is your name? You know, Abraham never asked that question. God calls him and he goes. Isaac never asked that question. Jacob, Joseph, none of those early characters, Noah, uh, Enoch, none of them ever asked, who is it that's speaking to me? Moses is the first one to ask, who are you? What is your name? What do you mean? And what ought I to tell others you are? But the second person, check this out, in chapter 5, to ask the same question, asks it a little differently. If you look at chapter 5, after the encounter between Moses and Pharaoh begins to become unleashed, it says, after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness... But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? That's a different way of asking the question, isn't it? Moses says, who is it that I should say sent me? Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should even begin to obey him? I find Pharaoh's question particularly intriguing, especially as I think about the day and age in which we live. Because today, people ask Who is the Lord out of an atheistic sort of philosophical bent? You know, what do you mean the God of the Bible is is the true God? There is no God. 
Pharaoh asks the question out of a completely opposite direction. He's a polytheist. He believes in many gods. And yet he asks the same question. In the modern world, we ask, who is God? Because we don't believe there is a God. In the ancient world, they ask, who is the God of, of Moses when they're believing in all kinds of gods? And so the, the issue is not whether you believe in God or not believe in God. The issue is whether or not you're open to hear the voice of the true God who alone is God, who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Pharaoh, he's saying, I know many gods. I know the God of the Nile. I know the God of the sun. I know the God of the moon and the stars. I know the God of the wheat. I know the God of the cattle. I know the God of the horses. I know the God of Pharaoh. You know, I know all of these gods. But who is this God? And why should I obey him? And God now is going to respond. You know, we oftentimes think it's a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. It's really a battle between God and the gods of Egypt. And so the answer to the question is, who is this God that I should obey him? He is the only God that there is. And this is the creator of the universe, the creator of you, without whom you can do nothing. You know, We keep coming back to that reality, whether it's a Pharaoh or whether it's a Moses, whether it's a Judas or whether it's a Yeshua. It is God who is the center of each and every life, whether we realize it or not. And so Moses, and this is interesting, what does Moses learn about God and what do we learn about God? One thing we learn about God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here in Exodus chapter 3, is that he is a God of impeccable timing. He is a God who never misses a beat. To you and I, we oftentimes, most times think God is behind us. God has missed the boat. He doesn't realize that he must act now, for if he doesn't act now, we're in trouble. But God's timing is always perfect. Think about this. Moses is now, are you ready for this? Moses is now 80 years old. He left Egypt when he was 40 years old. In Egypt, as the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant scriptures tell us, he was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was trained thereby in all the knowledge of their sciences, their medicine, their architecture, all of that. And what is Moses doing with all that knowledge? He's shepherding sheep. If you had graduated Harvard University or Yale, or Cornell, and you had your PhD in computer science. Maybe you had your PhD in philosophy, or literature, or mathematics, or medicine, and you found yourself working in the sanitation department, what would you think of yourself? Moses graduated from the greatest knowledge pool the world knew at that time, and what is he doing with it? He's hanging out with sheep. And he's not 20, 30, or 40. He's 80. Do you think he's thinking, my life is done? Do you think he's thinking, there's really nothing more that I can do? I am stuck with sheep in the wilderness without any place to go, without any future to think of. I mean, don't you think he would be thinking that? And so what attracts his attention? 
a bush that is burning. And he says, I got to go see this site. You know, it's like, it's just a bush burning, Moses. But he's noticing something about it. It's not being consumed. But God is a God of perfect timing. It doesn't matter how old you are, 80 years old. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have or don't have. God, if God's purpose in your life will be accomplished. That's what one thing we learn about God, because his timing is always perfect. You know, Mary, Martha, when Lazarus died, you remember Yeshua heard the word, Lazarus is dead, and Yeshua says these words. You have to read them completely. If you don't, you'll get the message wrong, right? Because what does Yeshua say? And I'm glad. No, he says, I'm glad for your sakes. You know, so you got to make sure you read the whole passage, right? And so he says, Lazarus is dead. And Messiah says, I'm glad for your sakes. And they say, well, let's go and get him so we can raise him up. He says, no. And he waits one, two, three days, and then he goes. His timing is always perfect. It may not be our timing, but his timing is always perfect. You know that gospel tune? He's right on time. When Yeshua died and was placed in the tomb, wouldn't it have been nice if he just was raised the next day or 10 minutes later or five minutes later or an hour later? The disciples could have gone to the tomb and said, let's get there quick because he's going to come out of there. But no, it's one day, it's two, it's three, but it's the perfect time. For Moses, it's another 40 years. And you would think, Isn't one year enough? (laughs) 10 years, 15, I'll even give you 20, but 40 more years. And yet God shows up on his 80th year to use him. One thing we can learn of what enabled Moses to become a great leader, he knew he was beginning to learn that God's timing is what matters because he's got another 40 years to go with the children of Israel, and he will not enter the promised land. He never complains, because he's already gone through 80 years, and God showed up, and he began to realize that I can trust him because he's always got the right time for all of us, whatever that time is. But there's something else that he learned, because not only is his timing great, but also his presence is always near. You know, Messiah, or I should say Moses, I keep interacting with those M's. Moses looks and he sees a bush that is burning and is not consumed. And the Lord speaks to him and tells him to take off his shoes because the ground upon which he stands is holy ground. When you look at this passage, He says, do not come near, take your sandals off. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he tells them his name. He says, I am. Now, in the Hebrew, it's just a verb. It's the verb to be, the verb hayah. Here it's yichyeh. But it's the same verb, and it can be translated in a variety of ways. It could be, I am, I always will be, 
I was, you know, uh, I, I am present. It has all of these different meanings that are very difficult to wrap our hands around. But one thing for certain, it means that he is the one who is completely sufficient in himself. He is the only one who is completely, theologians would refer to, as being independent He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He's completely independent of all. And thereby, he becomes what theologians refer to as being free. He's completely free. And therefore, he is one who is unto himself. So now you look at the bush, and it's burning, and it's not being consumed. Fire requires fuel. When the wood burns up, the fire goes out. But in this instance, the fire never goes out and the wood is never consumed. Why? Because God is self-sufficient. He does not need anything to exist. He does not need anything to fuel him. He doesn't need anything to enable him to be. He is the one who is. (laughs) Everything else needs him to be. Everything else needs him as its fuel in order to exist and to survive, but not our God. He is totally independent, totally free, and thereby he is not dependent on anyone or anything. And so what made Moses, such a great leader, he realized that it's God who is going to make whatever needs to happen, happen. And therefore, Moses learns what we talked about earlier, and that is the positive reality of Messiah's words, without me, you can do nothing. You know, until I started thinking about this message and this, this passage, I always looked at that phrase sort of Jersey-ish you know, where I'm from, sort of jury, without me, you can do nothing, you know, and sort of negative, right? But then I thought about it this way. It's really positive because God loves us. He wants the best for us. So what is he telling us? You want to be happy? You cannot be happy without me. That's what he's telling us. You can't be happy because you can't do happy without me. I'm the one that can make you happy. You want to be successful? You can't be successful without me because you can't do anything without me. So you want to be successful? Well, I'm the one that can make you successful. You want to have meaning in your life? You want to be a good parent? You need to know me because without me, you can do, you cannot do parenting. You cannot do medicine. You cannot do successfulness in any way, shape, or form, however you might define it. Whatever goodness you want to experience, whatever joy you want to experience, whatever happiness you want to experience, you cannot experience it without me. So it's not a negative thing. Without me, you can do nothing. Oh, I'll show you. I can do something. No, he's telling us, I am your life. I am the I am. And that's what Yeshua says, before Abraham was, I am. You need me in order to be all that you want to be. You need me to experience all of the good things you'd want to experience, all the joy and the happiness and all of those things. You need me 
to make this happen. And so when Moses sees a bush that's burning and not being consumed, he's being shown, it is me that can enable you to endure and it won't consume you. Here's the other thing that's kind of cool about this. That means you and I, if we really take this to heart, and I can't say I do, but if you do, for the first time in your life, you can relax. For the first time in your life, you don't have to own it all. And I'm telling you, the things that I've have gone through in recent years, it, it waited on me because I felt like I had to solve this that I somehow had to come up with the right answers, the right words to say, the right things to do in order to make it happen. And, you know, I now know it has nothing to do with me, but rather it has to do with God who must empower me or any of us in order to do whatever it is we do. And therefore, we could say, you know what, God, this is really your issue. This is really your problem. I know I have responsibilities, but it's you who must make it happen. And thereby, I can really believe what Yeshua says. You know, that he knows our need even before we ask because he's the only one that can provide it. And he's the only one that knows what it really is. Because even when I pray and I say, you know what my need is? The Lord says, you got it wrong. That's not what you need. Moses thought his need was, I got to get a life. I got to get something other than sheep. And God's saying to him, no, man, you're in the very place I want you to be. Relax. And I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. And you have no idea what you're yet to become. But it begins sometimes with shepherding. It begins sometimes in the wilderness. It begins sometimes in places where we would rather not be. But God says, my timing is perfect. My sense of destination for you is perfect. And I am with you. And therefore, you can relax. You don't have to take it all on your shoulders. You don't have to worry about what tomorrow may bring. Let it take care of itself because I'm taking care of you. It doesn't mean we become irresponsible, but it means that we take to heart what Moses is learning. He's going to go up before the greatest ruler, the most powerful ruler, the most despicable dictator in the world. And he's going to face him, not once, not twice, but ten times or more. And he's just going to repeat the words he has to say. He doesn't have a lot of lines, but he delivers them well. Let my people go. At first, he does take it upon himself. But over time, he begins to learn, I don't have to bear all this burden. Because without him, I can't do anything. And therefore, I can rest in his provision, and in him taking care of me. So Moses would learn God's timing is always perfect. He would learn that God is sufficient in himself and he can sustain us. And he would learn that God would be with him. You know, he says to Israel in this passage, I will be with you and bring you out of Egypt. And in bringing them out of Egypt, and this is kind of a a really powerful Reality. Take a look at chapter 3 one more time. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And it says in verse 2, As he came on to the west side of the wilderness and to, Mount, and to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But you know, from that point on, every verse says, God said. 
Every verse says, the Lord said, you know. So it says, the angel of the Lord to appear to him. And in verse 4, you would think it says, so when the angel of the Lord saw that he turned aside, but it doesn't say that. It said, when the Lord, sacred name of God. See, it's all in capital letters in English. When you have the Lord in all capital letters, capital L-O-R-N-D, that's the sacred name of God. When you have the word capital L with small O-R-N-D, that's the word Adonai. That's how the English translators are helping you to understand some of the Hebrew words behind the English translation. So it says here that the angel of the Lord appeared, but look, it says in verse 3, when the Lord, sacred name of God, let me just use the word Jehovah, I'm not a real fan of that word, but just so that we see it, it says, when Jehovah saw that he turned aside to see God, Elohim, or to see God, let's use the word Elohim here, call to him. And then it's, he said, here am I. Then in verse, verse uh, five, 6, and he said, I am Elohim. I am Elohim of Abraham, Elohim of Isaac, Elohim of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at Elohim. All of a sudden, the, Elo- the angel of the Lord is Elohim, or he's Jehovah. But he's never referred to as the angel of the Lord. And Moses turns his face away because he does know this much. He knows that if anyone looks upon God and sees him, he will die. He's afraid of that. So Moses realizes he's at a burning bush, but he's talking with God. And God is present with him because he tells him to take off his shoes because the ground upon which he is standing is holy ground. So it is God with whom he is speaking. So here is the big mystery of this passage. See, when I went to Israel back in 1979, the Sinai was under the control of Israel. So I was with my good friend Arnold, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and a handful of us said we had an option. And they said, you want to go climb Mount Sinai? I said, hey, absolutely. You know, got to climb it. Some people wanted to stay in a lot which is where you've got the beautiful beaches and the coral areas, you know, and they just wanted to chill. I said, no, 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 I'm climbing, you know. And so we took a tr- a one of these Jeeps into the wilderness. I can tell you a little bit more about it. But we went into the wilderness and we spent the first night with some Bedouins. I never had better tea than the tea the Bedouins gave us that night. I don't know what's in it. I don't really care. All I know is it was awesome, you know. And that night, you know, I remember, I think I may have shared this, but I remember that, that night I'm talking with the Bedouin guy, and I said, what's this trough here in the middle of the, wild, middle of the Sinai? He said, oh, that's for the camels. They'll come in the morning and get some water. I said, really? There's, there's no camels around here. What is, this, what is he talking about? He's just telling me that because he says, oh, he's an American. He'll believe anything. But around 2 o'clock in the morning, I had to get up, had to use the restroom. Well, there were no restrooms. I had to use a rock. And I went over and I walked over to it and I hear all this, you know, you know, kind of stuff. And there's all these camels at the trough. And I was like, first of all, it was really scary, but it was also pretty cool. The next day when we got up early in the morning, they're gone. You know, they were just gone. And we take our trek to Mount Sinai and we started climbing. I had some photographs from the top of Mount Sinai, seeing the sunrise. And, and for me, that was my favorite part of the trip. 
I mean, we were all over Israel. You know, five weeks I spent with Arnold in Israel. And he takes you everywhere. This is, see that hill over there? That's where so-and-so, so-and-so, one of David's mighty men came from. Okay, let's go back in the bus. and We, we go to another site. See that hill? That's where another mighty man, you know, he tell us everything. But for me, Mount Sinai was just, in, and the desert, and the, it was like being on Mars. That's what it looked like as I look back. It's just an incredible place. And we climbed to the top, and then we came down to the bottom. There was St. Catherine's Monastery, right? Another incredible place, largest icon collection in the world. Can't get into that right now, but there's some amazing things there, as well as manuscripts that are in their library. You can get some of them online these days. But also, as we trekked around the monastery, there was what they told us was the burning bush. It was all brick, you know, there's a brick thing around it, and next to it was a fire extinguisher. <laughs> I thought they didn't want to lose the burning bush. I said, look, it burned once and wasn't consumed. Couldn't it do that again? But the mystery is not the bush burning and not being consumed. The real mystery is Moses wasn't consumed. <laughs> you know? Why is it that Moses could draw near to God and not be consumed by him? Because he even tells us he was afraid to look upon God because... No man can see God and live. So how was it that Moses survived? And he survived for the same reason you and I survive. He survived because the angel of the Lord was present. And who is the angel of the Lord? It is Yeshua, right? In his pre-incarnate appearance. Why is it that you and I can enter into the presence of God and not be consumed? It's because of Yeshua. Because without him, we can do nothing. We can't stand in God's presence unless the angel of the Lord accompany us. Moses learns this later when he's leaving, uh, getting ready to leave Egypt. He says to God, I cannot go unless you go with me. And God says, I will send my angel to guide you. Because it's Messiah who enables us to stand in the presence of God and not just stand in his presence, but to rejoice in his presence, (laughs) to experience all that his presence can enable us to experience. It is Yeshua and him alone. So who is the Lord that we should obey him? Who is the Lord that when I go to my people, that's Pharaoh, but when I go to my people and they ask, who is the Lord who you spoke with? He says, tell them I am the one who sustains everything. And I am the one who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have called you. For you are not a people unto yourselves. You are my people. You belong to me, and therefore I will protect you, I will sustain you, I will bring you out from the land of Egypt to my mountain, this mountain, he tells Moses, this very place you now are at, I am going to bring you back, and I will give you my law, and you will enter into a new dynamic, a new covenantal relationship, but that's not the end of the journey. For from here, we will enter the promised land. But it's my angel that will go before you 
and bring you. And what did Yeshua say? I go to prepare a place for you. He goes before us as he prepares our ultimate eternal home, our ultimate promised land, and we will be with him forever and ever. The question is, have you heard God's voice like Moses? Have you asked the question like Moses, who are you, Lord? For he will answer you. You know, when I came to faith, it was a fellow who said to me, look, have you ever read about Yeshua, Jesus, for yourself? I said, no. He said, well, I'll give you a Bible with a New Testament if you'll read it. And he gave it to me. And he said, one other thing you need to do, you need to pray. You need to ask God to show himself to you. You need to encounter God. And that's what this is about. Moses, probably here, many scholars believe this is where he becomes a believer. This is where he gets saved. This is his conversion. This is the moment in which he asked God, are you who you are? Or who are you? And when God responds, he takes his feet, he bows down, and he embraces him. Because he personally encounters the living God. It's not like the Egyptians that knew this God who is the God of this, that, that, and the other. They had no relationship with these gods. They had no encounters with them. They just bowed before statues that they understood to have a certain impact. But that's not what our God is about. Our God is a God of encountering. We are to encounter him. We're to have a relationship with him. We're to connect with him and he with us. He speaks to us and we listen to him. He reveals things to us, and we respond to his revelation. He opens the word of God. It's his word to us that we might live in a way that honors him, blesses others, and benefits ourselves. It is to God that we must turn. It is to the Lord to whom we must look. Like Moses, and like all of God's people throughout the ages. So have you looked to him? Have you embraced him? Have you acknowledged him, and have you honored him as such? Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.